Well, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our evening reading, Song of Songs, chapter 4. And this evening we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 7, 1 through 7, uh, not going all the way through to 5-1. I had contemplated doing the entire section there, uh, so including the approach of the beloved and then uh, the uh, beginning of the, the kind of the uh, marriage ritual and so on and the consummation, but uh, I wanted to hammer home some, some points that should be taken by themselves, and I did not want the, the sermon to take 45 minutes. So I decided let's, let's take a smaller chunk and focus in on some very important ideas that part- have particular bearing upon not just our relationships obviously here on earth, but our relationships between the Lord and his people. So uh, if you would, let's go ahead and pray before we turn our attention to the word of the Lord. Oh, sovereign Lord, we are so thankful that you have not left us in the dark about your nature or what we are to do, what we are to believe. You have given us your word And it is a sure rule and a guide for all of our faith and our life and our practice. Every part of it is profitable and meant for our instruction. And, O Lord, while you gave us uh, a a section about prayer, you gave us a section uh, that also encompasses how we are to sing to you. You gave us uh, stories about how you have worked amongst your people. You have also given us a book that not only teaches us about the nature of your love for your bride, the church, but also about earthly love and how it should be that we go about pursuing our loved ones here and how our love here on earth should be a model for the love between the believer and his Savior. Now, Lord, we pray that as we turn our attention once again to this book, that you would be our guide and that you would help us to understand. Help me to preach it aright, O Lord. Help me also not to be embarrassed by any of the subjects that we touch upon and to overcome my natural English prudishness. I do pray, Lord, that you would do these things so that you would be glorified. In Jesus' holy name, amen and amen. Song of Songs, this is chapter four, and I'm going to be looking at verses one through seven. This is the word of the Lord. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Uh, a friend in school at the uh, University of St. Andrews, and I won't say his name, uh, on the dim chance that one day someone who knows him listens uh, to this particular sermon, although I, I sense my wife may actually know who I'm talking about. He was, uh, he was a delightful guy. He was very Scottish, and he was a big teddy bear kind of guy. Um, he was always rosy-cheeked, 
And he was definitely, you just looked at him and you knew he was from Scottish farming stock of old, just in the way that he was built and proportioned and laughed and, uh, you know, the things that he delighted in and so on. Um, he announced one weekend, or that in the upcoming weekend, that his girlfriend, his hometown honey, would be visiting uh, from his hometown. And uh, she was from one of the, uh, the small, well, he was, she and she were from one of the small towns uh, to the west of St. Andrews, I think uh, somewhere near Dunblane or Alloa. Uh, and he was literally whistling and skipping all week long as he waited for her to arrive. And then the weekend arrived, and he went to pick her up at uh, the train station, and uh, he brought her to uh, uh, our local pub and to our table. It's impossible to explain, incidentally, the, the English pub experience. It's so different from American bars. There's just no, no way to, uh, uh, to compare it. But uh, he brought it, her to our, our table, and he brought her up just just skipping and beaming and his cheeks were flushed and he brought her to her table and he said here she is isn't she lovely and so we looked at her and she gave this big smile and every tooth was going in a different direction you know I have to tell you it was like a picket fence one one of those houses where you know it's been left for a long time uh, she did not meet what one might call the modern model definition of beauty uh, in any sense, unless we're talking about the 16th century model of beauty where you were plump and happy. You know, that was, that was key, but uh, there she was. But when he looked at her, honestly, when he looked at her, I have no doubt in his mind that her teeth were perfect like a flock of shorn sheep which had come up from the washing, every one of which bears uh, twins, and there is none barren among them. To him, she was all twin gazelles, flocks of goats, pieces of pomegranate, delightsome to the eyes. Now, why was that? And the answer is because he looked at her with the eyes of love. He saw her as beautiful to him in every way, perfect and without spot or blemish. That was honestly how he looked at her. He was obviously deeply, deeply in love. So too, in this poem, we see in this idealized love affair, we have Solomon looking upon the Shulamite through the eyes of love. She did not think much of herself, you remember. She had said, I'm, I'm burnt from working in the sun. I'm not like the city girls. I, I don't have their, their perfect pastiness. I don't have the cosmetics. I am not soft and, and supple like they are and so on. But he looks at her and he waves that away and he says seven things about her appearance through verse 6, because 7 is the number of perfection. This woman is perfect to him. So it's not 8, it's not 6. There are 7 things he mentions. And the descriptions are probably not today uh, what women would want to hear. If I told my wife, your neck is like a tower with bucklers about it, she would probably look at me like, do you mean like I've got a goiter or a growth or something? Is it, you know, I'm not... In any event, uh, it's not what women today perhaps would want to hear about their, their physical attributes perhaps, but this was an age in which you know, agriculture uh, was predominant, uh, and he's describing the best of things uh, from their particular setting and the most magnificent of their buildings. You remember how when the apostles went up to Jerusalem, they were absolutely awestruck by these buildings, and they, they kept commenting on the beauty of the temple and, and things like that. 
So this was an age in which seeing this tower, this magnificent tower of David, would make an impression upon people. Uh, now, some of the analogies here in this poetry, I have to admit, are fairly racy. I will give you an example. Uh, G.I. Williamson comments back in uh, chapter 2 and verse 17, this girl expressed the desire that one day her fiancé would be like a young gazelle or a stag on the mountains of Bather. And the word Bather means separation, and I agree with the commentators who say that what she's really talking about there is what we today would call cleavage. And you'll notice that in this passage, when he describes the same thing, he's rather rhapsodical about it, for he speaks of the mountains of myrrh and incense and so on. So we're seeing a lot of analogies, a lot of metaphors that obviously have a very sensual side to it. Uh, it is uh, <laughs> it's a, a celebration of married love. It really is, and, and we shouldn't shy away from that. We have, unfortunately, a, a society that only seems to deal these days either in, on one side we have the, we won't talk about it at all, and then we have the hyper-eros pornographic, you know, this is not, that's not it either. And so we need to cleave to the biblical means and, and follow the directions that we are receiving from the Lord in his word. So he looks at her with these happy thoughts, with these thoughts of, of longing. He looks at her and he thinks about the fact that soon they will be together, soon their love will be consummated, the marriage is about to occur, and then, of course, the wedding night that he has been looking forward to, and she has been looking forward to as well. It's not a wrong thing to look forward to that. So he starts describing her, and note he starts in the safe zone, the eyes. Now, young men, if I can put it this way to you, really this is where you should be spending most of your time, if not all of your time, in the safe zone before you are married and so on. Uh, it is where obviously you should be making eye contact with the women that you are talking to rather than going immediately from the safe zone to the unsafe zones. I don't think I need to, uh, uh, to comment on that. That's just advice, but I think it's sound. Yeah, here he speaks of her as being veiled. Why is she veiled? She's veiled for the wedding. That was the common practice. Now, of course, the, uh, the, in a Jewish wedding ceremony, in, in our wedding ceremonies, there's a point at which the veil has to be lifted. And part of that is because you don't want to end up marrying Leah, uh, as uh, Jacob was, um, was bamboozled into doing many, many years before. So they always, you know, we're going to lift the veil and make sure we've got the right woman under there as well. But there's also, there's more of a metaphor as well. Uh, you'll notice that as the poetry has progressed, we've moved from the wall separating them to a lattice that they can look through. And now we have simply a piece of fabric and that piece of fabric will soon be lifted, and the day of consummation will come. There will no longer be any separation between them whatsoever. They will be one flesh. Her eyes are veiled when we begin, but he remembers them, and he calls them dove's eyes. Now, commentators are all over the place on why he calls them dove's eyes. Uh, some are like, well, they were probably grayish in their, their coloration and, and something like that, or they were soft like, like a dove. Um, I don't think he means they literally looked like dove's eyes. I've hunted doves, and I don't think that's much of a compliment myself. If you've ever seen them, they're kind of like wide open, and they blink big like this. And it, so um, not quite as bad as 
chickens, but you know, uh, nonetheless, it's not, not great. One commentator notes, and just this is to give you an idea of what they think the metaphor may be speaking of, the large melting eye of the Syrian dove appears especially beautiful amid the foliage of its native groves, so the bride's eyes within her locks, which is very poetic and so on. Is that what he means? I don't know, maybe, but it sounds good, doesn't it? But notice this, uh, one of the things that he says is your eyes are like dove's eyes, not like vulture's eyes, not like eagle's eyes or anything like that. Um, it, it's the idea that this is a, a clean bird as well. The dove was one of the only uh, animals that was acceptable for a sacrifice, the only bird that was acceptable for a sacrifice. So there is nothing tainted about them. There is nothing vicious about them or carnivorous. She looked at me with hawk's eyes, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, so these are, these are eyes of love. Uh, her hair, he says, is like a flock of goats. Now, what is this trying to... Uh, <laughs> your hair is smelly, dear. No, that's not what he means. Um, your hair is like a flock of goats. That is, it's alive with motion. This would imply that her hair was curly. It was in contrast, once again, to the city girl's hair that was uh, always, you know, uh, coiffed and, and, and put in place and so on. This is the wild, natural hair of the country girl. Her teeth are like shorn and washed goats. And the idea there is perfectly white and pure. When you look at a, a sheep that's been in the field for a while, and uh, con I mean, just by an odd coincidence, work, uh, when I was living in, in St. Andrews, as you walked to class uh, down the trail, you would pass a series of sheep enclosures, and you would see these things, and they weren't white. They were always gray until it came time for shearing, at which point they were washed, and then their wool was shorn. And that was the only time that they were really white and about the same size. They no longer had all the bumpy edges and so on from their wool and so on. So he's saying, your teeth are even, they're neat, they're white. You have good teeth, dear. I like them. So uh, she may be a yokel also. But notice he says, everyone has a twin. And what he's implying there is you're not missing, missing any teeth. So she's a yokel, but not a gap tooth yokel. All right. So... Um, in that sense. Um, her lips are like a strand of scarlet. The uh, word actually in the Hebrew is Shawnee. Uh, and the word scarlet in the English that, uh, that we have, it comes from actually a cloth, a very expensive cloth of the most brilliant red color. Uh, it was a medieval word. In Italian, it was scarlato, and in Spanish, escarlato. So um, the color also note this red is associated, and we think of red as associated with death in some sense or hell. That's not the case in Hebrew. Red was associated, believe it or not, with life. Red is the color of blood, and the life is in the blood. That was why the people of Israel were forbidden to eat the meat with the blood. The life was in it. They weren't supposed to be life eaters themselves. Also, it should harken back, I'm sure even in this time, it harkened back to the scarlet cord that Rahab put in her window, the sign of life, the sign of forgiveness as well. Um, it, it is worth noting uh, how much of his description, incidentally, is featured on her face. 
he's not describing her body that much at all. It's very different from uh, the way that we work today. Unfortunately, it's, it's all body-oriented uh, in our pornography-obsessed society in which everything has to be absolutely uncovered and revealed immediately. But uh, what we are learning here is about the, the deeper allure of modesty, the, uh, the hidden things. One of the things that I, I used to appreciate, and I know this is a stretch, and I, I hope you can follow me in my logic here. One of the things that I liked about the older horror movies was what was not revealed, okay? It was, uh, you know, that the terror was what you didn't see, what played in your mind as well, uh, as opposed to the modern slasher movies where everything is absolutely gory and, and so on. There's no terror in that, just repulsion and so on. So too in love, it's the hidden. It's the, the things that are to be revealed later on. It's the, it's the, the thrill of the moving through all of the parts of, the, of what we're supposed to be going through when we're going through a courtship, all of the, the various stages, the first touch of the hands, for instance, that, that electric uh, kind of contact that goes on, and then moving to the far more sensitive, the face and so on. It's, it's, all, it's a progression, and it's supposed to be wonderful. To, to go through that gradual progression and then come to consummation is a beautiful thing. And our society, unfortunately, knows nothing about it. We are a people, unfortunately, uh, for whom so many people will never go through this, this wonderful progression that we've seen in Song of Solomon. And that makes my, my heart hurt in many different senses. We're like a, a bunch of, I mean, so many men I, I speak to live, and I'm, I'm not joking, young men I, I speak to or hear about, they live in a pornography-addled world where they don't actually know how to speak properly to young women, and, and they're only hoping for, you know, the hookup culture and so on. They're like orphans just outside a bakery window, and they see all the things there for, for, for sale, and they desire them, and they try to imagine perhaps what they would taste or smell like, but they're never going to have the actual experience. It's all an imagination-driven thing that has no relationship to the wonderful relationship when you, you sink your teeth into the perfect apple turnover or the perfect bridey or the perfect... Uh, you guys don't know what a bridey is, do you? It's a, it's a Scottish meat pie. It's the, it's the azimuth of British baking. But anyway, uh, or, or the, the perfect croissant where the butter content is such that it just melts in your mouth and just the, ah, the perfection... Right there. But you don't get that by looking at it. Do you understand? It's, it, there, there may be longing, there may be imagination, but you don't have that experience. And if you grab it immediately and just shove it in your mouth, you also don't have the experience. It should be that, that process that the Lord has ordained that we experience. And the devil doesn't want us to have that, of course. He just wants counterfeits and things. Like, Ooh, it wasn't, you know. it, it, he wants it to be a joyless and, and ultimately unproductive in every sense of the word relationship. Well, we're on to the neck. The, uh, the Tower of David here. This is a, a beautiful tower on the walls of Jerusalem that he's indicating. Now, this would indicate that her, her, her neck is, is not, you know, limp or, you know, she's not one of these chinless wonders uh, who you can't tell where the face ends and the neck begins, that kind of thing. But rather, she is strong and she is regal. 
Um, now, the tower would no doubt have had decorative stonework, these bucklers, to indicate that it's, it's strong, and perhaps in a day of celebration, it would have literally been set about with those shields to indicate a celebration is taking place. Um, it, but it also implies that she's no easy conquest, okay? This is not, not a tower that has fallen or falls to everybody, uh, but rather she is impervious to assault except by the right person, and there the assault doesn't need to happen. What has happened? She has yielded to his ministrations. She has opened the tower doors, and now he may come in because he is the right person. He is the right ruler. So there is there that, uh, that allegory. And uh, although once strongly defended, she is now surrendering herself willingly and peacefully to this unique love of her life. It's not the, you know, he's not comparing her to a tavern that anybody can stop by. Rather, she is a strong tower. And then, of course, we get into the danger zone, the, the breasts. And uh, please note that the man didn't start there and then move up. Rather, he, he, he arrives there. Uh, he describes them to, uh, as twin gazelles, perfectly matched, or fawns, fawns of gazelle. Why fawns? Well, we could spend all night discussing why fawns. I, I, and a lot of the speculation would be, I think, useless. But... Um, Fawns are shy and rarely observed. We do know that one thing about them. And the same should be true of breasts. Uh, They are graceful as well. Uh, They are beautiful to behold, but not something that we see every day. And it fits, you know, the comparison that's being made there with women's breasts. They They are something beautiful, but something at the same time shy and should be concealed. There's also desire here, obviously. Elsewhere in the song, the, uh, the, the man is compared to a gazelle who grazes amongst the lilies. And now we hear the breasts are like gazelles amongst the lilies. And so the, the description is pointing forward to the fulfillment of the man's own desires. He desires her, he desires her breasts. Okay, that's... <laughs> obviously. And that's right in a married relationship. It shouldn't be like, well, okay, you know, we're getting married. hope it works out. It, it, there's nothing like that here. This is passionate. There's desire. There's longing. There's a, a sense of, you know, I, I don't know if these were the, the perfect breasts, but as he, he looks and he sees, and to her she is perfect and without mar in any way. And so everything is the best here. And then in verse 6, we have consummation. Uh, The day breathes and the shadows flee, indicating the coming of the morning. The time of courtship, the time where they were were parted is is passing. And the woman at one point, you remember in the uh, poem, she tells him to, to, to turn around and go away. But now it is open. Now the, he can go to the hill of, of frankincense and myrrh. And we have this idea of the, uh, the, the phrase, obviously, indicating once again mountains and, and cleft mountains and so on. And I'm getting embarrassed, so I'm going to stop. Um, so, but going back to that, you'll remember that she uh, spoke of this, the sachet that would lay all night between her breasts, filled with the, the, the incense and perfume and so on, and she compared him to that. Now he can be that. She can finally receive the fulfillment. And he says to her, after she's come into his presence, after she has come to him to be married, they're about to go through their wedding vows and then 
the consummation of the marriage, he says, you are all together beautiful, my love. He waves aside her concerns. You remember her earlier concerns? I'm not good enough. He's not going to look at me. I'm a, I'm a country hick. And there are all these beautiful women at the palace. And how can I ever? And, you know, all that anxiety. And so he, he says, no, you don't understand. You are my desire. You are the one. Every part of you is my desire. You are my heart's desire, love. And he says that to her. He waves everything away with a stroke. And then he says, there is no flaw in you. You are altogether beautiful. You are beautiful within. You are beautiful without. My joy is in seeing you here in this wedding day and knowing that we are about to enter into this relationship that will last till death do do us part. That's the idealized view of marriage. It's what we should desire here on earth in our earthly relationships. But, of course, here we see also the perfection of the analogy between the bride and the bridegroom in terms of Christ and the church. It's become stronger and stronger. He sees her as lovely because he sees her as he will through her, with, through his, rather, redeeming love, his perfecting love. He sees her as she will be in eternity after that wonderful work of cleansing has gone on. So if you'll turn to me, uh, turn to me, turn with me to Romans, no, Ephesians. And specifically to Ephesians 5. That chapter that speaks par excellence about the love between husbands and wives. I wanted you to take a look at, at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Here on earth, brothers and sisters, we have to admit the church is not holy and without blemish, but we look forward to the wedding day, the, the day when we'll seat, I will be seated at the wedding feast of the Lamb and when the church will be perfect. The church will be without blemish. Now, it should be our desire in our married relationships here on earth that, particularly husbands, that we would be desirous of of sanctifying our wives, of, of growing them in holiness, and also our view of them growing more and more perfect so that to us they are holy and beautiful and we can look at them and say in earnest, isn't she lovely, both inside and out, and it be true because of the work of Christ within them and because of the love that we have, that that Christ-like love that should be the case. One of the, the wonderful things is to see an older couple, an older married couple, Christians who have been together for years, who can look at each other with eyes of adoration because they see the beloved there and they see the work of Christ in their loved ones. I, I, I often, uh, you, you blush at, at the way that older um, Christians speak of their, their loved ones and so on. The, you know, the pet names, you're like, you're 75. I can't believe you're still calling each other pet names. But they, they still, they, they love each other. And in so many cases, they love each other more now than ever. 
And they're looking forward to the, to the fullness, the, the consummation of everything, when their communion will be perfect in Christ up above. And so the, the adoration simply grows. I hope that happens in your relationship. It should be something that occurs in the lives of Christians, that, they're, uh, that they, because of the work of Christ in them and in their loved one, they grow closer and closer, even as they get older and older. Now, at present, the church here on earth, the church militant, the world looks at it, and it is disgusted. It hates the church. Um, Unfortunately, Nick, uh, when he called (laughs) the CEO of Cool Springs, experienced some of that disdain towards the church, that how vile you are uh, kind of attitude. But uh, we should understand that's the way the church looks. I mean, the world looks at the church. In 1 Corinthians 4.11, we read this, To the present hour we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands, being reviled we blessed, Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Paul says to the world, what are we? We're like the stuff you find on the bottom of your sandal after you've been walking on the road. We are just filth. But is that how the Lord looks at us? Maybe the way the world looks at us, because we don't meet their worldly standards for loveliness at all. We fail so, so far. We're so far deficient in that we don't follow after all of the counterfeits, all of the baubles, all of the plastic and, and the, the vanity fair kind of nature of the world. It means nothing to us. Does that mean we're not lovely? Far from it. The church is lovely to her Redeemer. And he sees her as she will be someday, perfect, spotless, he sees her not as Cinderella, the, you know, the, the girl in the uh, ashes in the fireplace, disdained by her worldly sisters and so on. He sees her as the princess that she will someday be by his working. Now, to other members of the church, the sad thing is sometimes the church militant here on earth can seem vile as well. There's an old ditty. It goes, to dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. We sometimes we look at our church, we look at our congregation, we look at the way Christianity is here on earth, and we are sometimes appalled uh, at exactly how far from spotless and pure and without blemish we are. It can be the case that we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ in the same congregation with those eyes, but that should not be the case. We should be looking at the church, certainly the members of our congregation, with the same kind of loving emphasis that the Lord looks at them with. We should be desiring also to see them made pure and spotless and without blemish and doing everything that we can to stir them up, to exhort them, to press them in the right direction. That is how we love one another, not looking at each other and saying, how far short of the standard you come, that kind of thing. There should be that loving desire to see the loveliness of Christ in the midst of our church, certainly within us. How does that happen? Well, it's not we who do the work of making uh, people lovely with cosmetics like the world does, but rather it is through the working of Christ. Does he not say to those who come to him by faith that he will make them spotless? In Isaiah 118 The Lord says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
If we will but come to him, he will make us pure and without blemish. And then Psalm 51.7, we remember David cries out, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. There is that assurance that he is the one who makes us spotless and perfect and beautiful to behold. Even though we come to him with all of our blemishes in our rags and so on, he takes them away and he gives us garments of his own perfect weaving and he washes us clean of all blemish and he makes us beautiful in his eyes. So let me give you one final exhortation and it's this it is to beware the jaundiced eye you remember I spoke of of my friend in St. Andrews and how he looked at that woman and he looked at her through the eyes of love and she was perfect she could do no wrong because of his overwhelming love for her she was a very nice girl incidentally as well so but it can develop that we develop exactly the opposite we develop a jaundiced eye all right, and we no longer, we're not looking at people through rosy colored glasses. We look at them through these awful glasses. You know, jaundice is a disease in which you turn yellow and everything is discolored. And, and we can have discolored glasses where we look at people, either our loved ones. The bizarre thing is, I have, I've met couples, unfortunately, I'm sure you have as well, where the person who is their partner can do no right. There is nothing about them that is... I I remember, I'm I'm not kidding, I actually stopped a couple, uh, and a woman was was talking about her husband in in terms that were just, they were were painful, they were awful. And I, I, I stopped her and I said, can you explain to me exactly why did you decide to marry Hitler? You know, trying perhaps to, to bring her back to the point where she didn't have this awful across the board opinion of him. Now, I know for a fact that things that he had done had gradually built that opinion, had gradually discolored her glasses. But beware of that. Beware of having jaundiced glasses so that nothing that your loved one can do is ever going to be good enough. Also, beware of having those kind of jaundiced glasses when it comes to the church. Yes, there are hypocrites in the church. There are hypocrites in Walmart as well. You still go shopping there, I'm sure. Please understand, this side of glory, you're not going to find the perfect church. And if you did, the moment you joined it, it would be the imperfect church. (laughs) It's simply the fact. We have to look at each other with the same kind of eyes of love. The charity that should exist between Christians. What do we call this love that we should have for one another? What's it called in the New Testament? Agape. Thank you. We should have that agape love between one another. That judgment of charity that affects everything that we do and even when somebody sins against us and your brothers and sisters in Christ yes they will sin against you because they're sinners so are you you'll sin against them what should we do when one of our brothers or sisters sins against us well if it's a grievous sin and they're not repenting Matthew 18 we should follow that we shouldn't tell everybody else what they've done we should go to them because we're seeking to be reconciled So we go through the Matthew 18 process. But if they come to us, knowing that they've sinned against us, and they ask us for forgiveness, what should we do? Forgive them. Forgive them as Christ forgave you. We should love them. Brethren, love one another. That's not hypothetical. It's actually something that we're ordered to do. Love one another. That's true not just of your relationship within the congregation, It's true of your relationship within your family. 
And certainly it's true of your relationship between wives and husbands. Love one another, forgive one another, and look at one another with the kind of eyes that Christ looks at you with. Though he found you poor and blind and dirty and frankly sinful, rebellious and corrupt, yet that is not how he sees you. And that is not what you will be in eternity. Look at one another with that same kind of view, both in your married relationship and in the relationship that you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you will do well. Let's go before the Lord who looks at us with eyes like that. God, our gracious Father, we thank you that you see us, even though we are sinners, as altogether lovely. I thank you for that, Lord, and I thank you also for the advice that you give us, the sound advice in how to conduct our relationships. Oh, Lord, there is so much beauty in this poem. I feel utterly unworthy to try to unpack it and explain all of the metaphors, but I know, oh, Lord, that you can do that in the lives and the minds of the people who read it, and so I pray, Lord, for your congregation that they would take these things to heart and they would apply them in their own lives as you see fit. Now, Lord, please help us to apply the, the, the look of love to our own relationships within the church and within our household.